Hello and welcome to Trees Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Ozzy. And we're talking about Tenet. It's Tenet Day, the big new Christopher Nolan film I've been looking forward to since... I think the first time I heard about it was when we saw the preview of it before oh. Star Wars Episode Nine. Do you remember? It passed me by. Oh, we definitely saw it. We talked about it. No, we no, saw I believe it. it. I believe you. I'm just, you know, it was not memorable to me. What they showed was a, a scene in an opera house. Uh, there's some sort of heisty thing going on. People in military gear, masks, big old scale, all the rest. And you go, oh my God. And then it turned out, oh, it's Christopher Nolan. Ah. So we've been waiting and waiting, and the film's been delayed three times, I think. It's still not come out in America. Mm. America doesn't really seem to have a plan for the reopening of its cinemas, but they have reopened here, or at least Cineworld has. I don't know about other chains or independent places. We only really see Cineworld. This is the opening day, I think. We saw it. We're also seeing it again on Sunday in full IMAX. A lot of it was shot in big IMAX. Uh, That's what Nolan loves to do. But for today, we've seen it in digital IMAX, little piddly... Nothing IMAX. I mean, it looked great. It what looked do you mean? It looked wonderful. Kind of piddly. It looked fantastic. So, important to say before we start, see the film before you listen to this. Yes. We're spoilers, going to spoil spoilers, the whole spoilers. lot, and and there's so much surprise in it. I was literally wowed by some of... It's, it's all conceptual, what I was wowed at, really. And I was when I realised how things were working, what the film was doing, I was staring wide-eyed, open mouthed i was looking at you going oh this this is great i mean you were well, just looking at the screen you didn't see me doing that no i i mean the film lost me halfway so we're going to have an interesting conversation okay so let's quickly say what it's about up until kind of spoiler territory and then i'll make a very clear spoiler break mm. it's about a guy played by john david washington you know only as the protagonist and he only says that a couple of times basically you're not given his name this scene in Opera House is the opening scene of the film, and there's something about a guy who's been made, they've gone in there to get him, and there's a heist and some fighting, and John David Washington ends up on the floor next to a bullet hole, and then he sees the bullet hole turn back into an undamaged back of this chair, and the bullet returns to the gun of a guy who's pointing a gun at him. Mm. And so that's the first indication that something about this world is different and kooky and not right. He's then captured by Russians. This is a Russian opera house. Takes a cyanide pill to keep secrets, all that kind of stuff, complete the mission, not give anything away. Turns out that that was a a kind of test, a cyanide pill. Actually, he's just been put into a coma, but now the powers that be know they can trust him. He Mm. will keep their secrets, and they give him a word, Tenet. Tenet. (laughs) (laughs) And he's introduced to things that travel backwards in time. So this is all in the trailer. You've seen the gun Mm. that is empty when he shoots it. Mm. And then when he shoots it, a bullet returns to it and it catches the bullet. Mm. So there's this kind of philosophical conversation that happens early on about if this is travelling backwards in time, can I stop it? What happens to free will? And you're thinking, how do the rules of this work? And of course, the film eventually gets around to explaining it. But that is big spoiler territory. So we should say at this point, we are going to ruin everything. Yes. Okay, so stop listening now if you've not seen it or or you know don't want to know. And I think it's brilliant. So the concept of the film is not that just individual things go back in time sometimes. There's a machine that reverses entropy and it's explained in very kind of light scientific terms and there's no way this is actually based in reality to any significant degree. It can't happen. You go into this machine and come out now backwards in time. So you're going forwards yourself but the world you're existing in is now reversed. Mm. And it's it's incredible because, so for instance, there's a car chase. And this is the car chase that you've seen a bit of in, in the trailers where a car crash happens in reverse. The car starts off crashed, ends up back on its wheels, driving backwards. And then they go into the machine and come out and you realise that this car, now you're in the car going forwards and the car crash happens forwards and the, and the rest of the car chase happening around it is happening backwards. I didn't, I, I didn't find that exciting or interesting at all, I must say. No? No. I thought it was conceptually brilliant. Um, I don't. I mean, again, it's it's commonplace in comic books. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, comic books have always played with, with time uh, and the possibility of going back in time and how to go back in time and, you know, whether your actions, 
you know, affect time or what happens when you meet yourself in the past. You know, all, all of those uh, things have been, you know, explored in comic books. And I actually don't think that this, this film, which only has, I think, the concept going for it, develops it any further than, you know, it's been developed in kind of comic books made for children. So, so I was, I was, I was really disappointed, in fact. I mean, I thought, you know, is there, is there more to this? Um, because, you know, if you don't buy all of that going backwards, I mean, you know, when, like, you just think, well, they've just kind of reversed, you know, they've just reversed the film, so the seagull's going backward. I did think that was like... I think um, <laughs> yeah, I think that all of that is really reductive and very unfair. Okay, well, like kind of. Um, I mean, you're right to say time, this is not the first time that that things have plagued with time. Films as well, you know, um, none has done it himself. Irreversible was the entire thing was going backwards in time. There've been no, but this I meant in a science fiction way where you still know. it's not the first. You're right to say it's not the first time. Yeah. Okay, so how am I being reductive? Because it's not just a case of, oh, things are going backwards in time. Like, the film is building up to this idea that there's interaction between the two. And I think it's, it, I think it's conceptually brilliant. So, so when I first sort of started to think this, was you get to the... Oh, God knows how long into the film it is. The middle of the film, where they get into this room. And the room is long, and there's windows down the middle that separate the two halves mm-hmm. of the room. So you're on the right-hand side, and it's lit in uh, red. And the left-hand side is lit in blue. And there's a conversation happening between the villain on the left-hand side and the good guy on the right-hand side. But it's happening backwards. So you hear the question before it's been asked. Mm. And then you follow the protagonist into the machine that's at the end of this room. And you come out in the blue side of the room where the villain has formerly been. He's now vacated. And you see the stuff happening in the red side of the room, happening backwards. You realise you have literally followed this guy round. And what happens is you then return to the car chase that led them there. So this is the car chase where the car uncrashes. And what I think, what, what I mean, I was, the whole time I was going, oh God, this is brilliant. This is how it works. And it's making so much sense. Anything that goes through this now just travels backwards in time through the same world. But it's not, it's not like you, you get younger. You're still going forwards. The world around you is reversing. Mm. So it's all it's subjective. It's all about subjectivity. Well, it's and more than subjectivity. Yeah, kind of. It's almost like a kind of an opposite because they say, so, you know, if you burn, you'll have ice forming and, you know, you'll feel the wind going in the opposite direction and they give you a set of rules. Yes. And the bit that really made my jaw drop was in the car chase that, you know, has led them there and now leads them back out. And they're chasing this guy backwards through time. And it's the car that they're driving and the car that is chasing them are driving back to back. And one of them is going forwards and the other one is reversing it up to it. So like, so the thing is, because cars haven't been through this machine, you can drive them, but you have to drive them going forwards in reverse. Yeah. I thought, God, this is great. And they're interacting in the middle of it. God knows how they did some of it. Some of it is just a case of reversing footage, but some of it is very complex. Well, I couldn't get excited about it um, because I think it's you're right that, you know, some of it is very well executed and there's a logic to that execution. Yes. You know, um, that's true. But I just don't think it's kind of conceptually interesting enough to be excited about. Uh, yeah, I don't think it kind of develops any of these ideas, you know, with any more nuance or any further than, as I said, you know, relatively simple comic books have done, certainly for children of my generation. So it didn't offer me that. Mm. Uh, and then I just couldn't get excited about any of the characters. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, I wasn't affected emotionally by any of it. So actually, if it doesn't wow you conceptually, right, and if it doesn't wow you formally, which, you know, to me, to a large extent, it didn't. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I will grant several things. Yeah. Like, you know, I love the opening sequence. I actually really liked some of the action in near the opening. Yeah. Like you did mm-hmm. feel like a physical kind of whoosh, you know, in the way that it was edited. So I thought that I liked very much. I do love the IMAX. I mean, people's skin texture. And I mean, I, I hated the blue look of the film. Mm. Yeah. It, it looks like, 
you know, like those 90s films when digital came in that all looked like the side of a submarine or something. There is a kind of a, you know, yeah. uh, uh, an aspect of that. But then people's faces come in, you know, and you have like these warm tones and yeah, mm. it looks very deep and rich. Uh, and I like that. But, you know, I, there's a very similar, I don't know if you saw The Night Manager. On, yes, I did, yeah. Yeah? I mean, the band, The Night Manager deals with kind of, you know, similar things, yeah, a kind of a Russian, no, a, a multi-billionaire oligarch who's arms dealing, you know, who's keeping this mistress who he abuses, yeah, a, an interloper. There's actually quite a lot of similarities. And, you know, but I found The Night Manager so moving and so sexy and glamorous, mm -hmm. you know, whereas this, it just left me cold, really. Like, you know, I don't believe... Um, Debbie Kay? Yeah. Um, but what I was thinking is, I don't believe... So, because I think Debbie Key is fantastic. And I actually think Kenneth Branagh is also fantastic. I think he's got a real threat. Mm -hmm. You know. But I just don't believe the, the their feelings about their children the way that they're dramatized. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you love your child, why would you blow up the world that he's part of? I mean, it just it didn't make it didn't make any emotional sense to me. I'm completely in agreement with you about that. There's only one relationship that I cared about enough to feel anything and that was the relationship between Neil who's played by um, Robert Pattinson mm. and the protagonist right. played by John David Washington yes. and when they split at the end I mean I, I've just gone on Wikipedia and sort of read the plot and it's very annoying that th there are things that I missed and I th honestly think the reason that I missed them was because the dialogue isn't clear enough mm. and I do think it's a, a continual problem actually with Christopher Nolan's films that you don't get a clear enough sense of the dialogue Maybe he's trying um, to hide <laughs> but it's, it's things like, the banality of some of it. <laughs> I think that's probably true. I mean, I think in, in the middle of an action scene, it doesn't matter all that much. And you know, there were some things in Interstellar where you couldn't really hear what characters were saying over the roar of the ships. And I thought, no, this is fine, actually. But you want to hear plot-relevant dialogue mm. in non-action scenes, clearly. And actually, I think you really can't. The mix of the music, it's still too high underneath things. Yes. It's not clear enough. And so there's stuff about the algorithm, and it's only in reading the plot that you go, okay, the algorithm is this thing that they're fighting over in this kind of uh, bunker at the end. And it's all just kind of what's an algorithm stuff. And then it's explained on Wikipedia that, oh, it's these nine pieces of backwards-travelling stuff, and if you put them together, you can end the world. It's like, okay, but all I heard was the word algorithm. Yeah. And I got the sense that, you know, this was apocalyptic, because they're yeah. talking about World War Three. But... It isn't very well... It's not very well explained. Oh. And the thing with Pattinson's character yeah. is you see him dead on the floor in this fight at the end. You recognise him because there's this... Well, you don't recognise him at first. You see this corpse, and its backpack has got this tag on it that you do recognise, um, or that you take note of, and there's a close-up. You know, you're meant to see it. And then this corpse is travelling backwards in time, and what you realise is that this has been shot in the face to protect John David Washington from getting shot in the face. This guy, either he was pushed in front of him or sacrificed himself. It happens very quickly. Mm. Um, but he took the bullet for John David Washington. And then you get back outside, and it's John David Washington and Pattinson ending the film together. And he sees the tag on his bag, and he, go, and he realises that this is Robert Pattinson who has taken the bullet mm. for him. But obviously, in the future, and so you real, and then this thing is revealed of, I've known you for years. Robert Pattinson says you've only just met me, but I've known you for years and years and years, and you got me into this. Yeah. And for me, and this, I think it's a lovely line. You probably hate it. He says, "I think this is the end of a beautiful friendship." I know. Because what he's basically saying is, you have years and years of this friendship to come. You've only just met me. Mm. I've had this friendship already. So, like, there's this wonderful bittersweet tone to it where there's this life that he's lived and he says, we're going to have some adventures, but I'm not going to see him anymore. I've done it. And, and it's, I think it's a really wonderful... I think it's quite touching, that. I like that between the two of them. Um, Way to finish it. I... Let me try to explore, because I, I didn't, mm. really. I mean, you know, you see an attempt to be witty and flippant and so on. But it didn't seem to carry, for me, you know, that little emotional resonance that you're talking about, mm. where, you know, you, you obviously found delight in this idea that, like, you know, for one it was over, for the other it was just beginning, but they're somehow connected, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I didn't... Uh, and, I, and I also, there was something in the way that uh, Patterson said the line that felt a bit too artificial or forced, you know, that... Uh, I felt it's kind of it lacked the warmth necessary to give it that kind of emotional resonance that you got out of it, but I mm -hmm. didn't. 
But, you know, uh, to me, that is just barely scratching the, the, the surface of the problems that I have with the film. You know. Well, with the rest of the characters, as I say, I'm in agreement with you. So the villain is this Russian oligarch played by Kenneth Branagh and his wife, uh, Elizabeth Debicki, mm. is kind of under lock and key and he's made this threat to her that because um, they've got a son together and if you can only leave if if you give up your son, something like that. Yeah, and so she's abusive. basically... Yeah, she's got an abusive relationship, exactly. And, um, and it's all very... It, a lot of it feels kind of rote and I don't think you really feel it. And I really didn't believe the dinner scene where John David Washington meets her hmm. because she immediately, like he's basically a stranger. He's kind of inveigled his way because he's a spy and secret agent into this meeting that she's very important. She's got a very important husband at least. And, um, and she immediately starts opening up about this, about this abusive relationship and the deal with her husband about the son and oh, I don't want to be there and he's an awful man. And you go, why are you opening up to this stranger? Basically it's bananas. And so actually I didn't believe it. I thought she's playing him. That she's yeah. feeding him something and then turns out to just be true. So it's nonsense, that scene. Well, I think many scenes are, are, are nonsense. Uh, and it makes me wonder about um, Nolan as a dramatist, right? Because there are really simple things that uh, are missing, I think. So, for example, since the bond with the child or since her being a mother, since all of that is so important, right, in the film, why don't you show us? Yeah, why don't you show us the child? Why don't you show us some interaction with the child? Why don't you show us how much she loves the child? And like, in, you know, mm. I mean, it's just it's just a nanosecond. You could show that in a nanosecond. Why doesn't he? You know, you always see the child being walked to school in a long shot or things like that. I mean, it, it almost makes mm. no sense, right? If he's supposed to be what's blocking her, you know, this abusive, nasty, you know, calculating relationship, why isn't the threat that she's in? dramatized and more particularly dramatized through her child because that is what is motivating her yeah you know there are it's, things... it's spoken about yeah it's it's tell don't show exactly right to me all of that is a big problem and and actually there's an interesting thing to explore here about what i see as a kind of um not misogyny might be too strong a word for it but a kind of a very limited view of women mm. you know and, a, and an incredible sentimentalization of children mm. that actually, you know, doesn't take on board the complexities of that. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that Elizabeth Debicki, as the only female character of any note in the film, there's the girl who introduces the concept at the start. There's one girl who has a line of dialogue about these are the rules. Now you go back in time later. Elizabeth Debicki is the only female character with any real role. Well, there's the Indian woman. but Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. As the main yeah, female yeah. role in the film. She is expected to bear the burden of all of the film's emotional mm. story. Mm. You know, the, and the thing that you're saying about you don't see the child, you don't see this relationship is absolutely true. What you're expected to feel is through her performance as this distressed mother, this abused wife. Mm. You're expected to feel it, and it's not that she gives a bad performance, but it's not she, enough. No, she's great. You need more. Yeah, I mean, she's not the problem. She's great, um, but you need more. And actually, I would extend that even further. So. Because really, I think, at the heart of this film is this relationship between the protagonist and the Robert Pattinson character. As you rightly pointed out, it, it ends with that. It's meant to have some kind of emotional resonance. Why isn't there a scene in the middle of it, like, you know, that kind of shows you the importance and the significance of one man to another, mm. emotionally, right? Not just in terms of having your life saved, but actually what it means to the other person. There isn't that at all in the film. I, I know what you mean. And to some extent, I think that's kind of answered by the fact that that scene is what happens at the end. You know, the, the thing about that relationship, the way, the way it's happening through time, mm. is that it means so much to one guy and nothing yet to the other because mm. he's just met him. So, to some extent, you can't have that yet. They're not old friends. But you could have something that suggests that... I mean, and I think a lot of it may... Hopefully, some of it will um, come into focus on rewatching it. Because on rewatching it, you will know that Robert Pattinson knows him. Yes. And has known him for years and is a friend. So, hopefully, you will see through his performance and through maybe lines of dialogue that you didn't pay attention to this time. It could be that, that we didn't pay attention to because the thing is, even though they've just met, 
Yeah, you have been seeing them for two hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, so there, there was a way of building an emotional relationship between them. Yeah, that yeah. is not just one of action. Yeah, so basically what I'm saying is like, hopefully things will come out through that and, and you will realise on a second viewing that this is built into Robert Pattinson's character mm. because he has this history. And John David Washington's character, you know, doesn't, but you may see things. On the other hand, if you don't, then that's a failure because, I mean, Christopher Nolan himself talks about film people watching films more than once mm. these days. And, and uh, well, okay, I was watching Christopher Nolan Q&As last night. Um, <laughs> You're such a fan. <laughs> well, I, I, not really. One came up on my YouTube feed. Um, it was a, 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 like an extra feature or a, or a, a thing about Memento and the mm. structure of Memento, which is interesting. We might talk about and then one video led to another, and it was a Q&A, largely about Dunkirk. And he was talking about his relationship with time, and people were talking about that. But um, one of the things that he mentioned is the idea of wanting your film to be watched more than once. Yes. So hopefully that is in there, basically. This stuff about this relationship, hopefully we will see it the second time and go, and it will crystallise. Maybe. If it doesn't, I think that's a problem, and it is something that, that the film has an opportunity. Yes. I mean, I do think that the way we view films has changed. You know, and that filmmakers in general expect their films to be seen more than once, you know, and to be forwarded and back, uh, go backwards like in a novel. You know, you can do that kind of, um, you know, even even on Netflix, you can do that. So I think, you know, filmmakers make films with that in mind. So I think it's not the end of the world if we don't get everything uh, on first viewing as, you know, you would expect to uh, historically and normally. But... You know, I do have, I mean, certainly on my first viewing, my main problems with the film is I didn't think it was like intellectually exciting. You know, I didn't think it was conceptually exciting the way you did. Mm. You know, I don't think it was emotionally involving. I like the look up to a point. The action sequences, I have the same problems that I always have with him. Though, you know, I mean, and there was something interesting that we talked about where sometimes the flow of the editing, like you do feel this rush it's like a, a physical rush, you know, at some of the action. Though, to be fair, that only happened to me in the first third of the film. Yeah, the, it's much the, more hand-to-hand -hand at that point as yeah, well. It's uh, guns later on. Yeah, it, I, I wasn't, it didn't excite me. Uh, I found the sound atrocious and the score was bothering me. It wasn't, you know, so I, I kind of, I liked that it's not melodic, you know, that it's kind of industrial or whatever. Mm. That didn't bother me. I'm, I don't have a bias against that. But it was just so insistent and so loud, right? It's the mix again. I think this is the thing with no... Uh, the, the score is by Ludwig Göransson. Mm. It's not uh, Hans Zimmer. And I think you can tell. I, I mean, actually, I think Hans Zimmer has more identifiable themes and ideas in his music mm. than this does. The compositions here, I like the timbre of the music. I like the style. And, and I like the tempo. And like, I do like the way it kind of underpins things and keeps the tempo moving. But... I thought it was too insistent. Yeah. You know, there's one thing about keeping the, the, the tempo moving. There's another in which you're reacting to the music rather than what you're seeing. Right? It's just so loud and so insistent. And at a certain point, you reject it. You say, I'm not... You know, you you know that that wants to involve you like physically, and just say fuck you, like you know, you're over egging the pudding here, and <laughs> take it back to the kitchen. Like yeah. you know, I, it was I, so much that I I felt resistant to it actually. I know what you mean, and I felt that I couldn't, I, I didn't enjoy the compositions enough. I mean, maybe that's the simplest way of putting it. I didn't enjoy. There's one piece which is the kind of piano thing that is playing over the trailer that comes into the film eventually. Um, and like I say, the style works for me, but the actual compositions I don't think are appealing or memorable enough. Like they are just, it's like a bed just underpinning the whole film. Okay, well, to go from one composition to another, I think, you know, a main criticism of mine about Nolan is to the visual compositions. What a great segue. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, because I, you know, and this time I actively looked for them, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and there were there were some very beautiful shots, but actually, it it still remains visually uninteresting to me. I kind of I don't you know I don't think he's expressing anything poetically visually, really. Um, you know, and and some of the the bits that I find truly beautiful actually have more to do with the location mm. you know, than than with actually what the what the camera and the camera movement you know and the frame are expressing. 
Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to effects. So when you're seeing the cars go backwards and, and you realise this is how things are working, that's always exciting me. And and seeing it clearly, which I think you do, is exciting. And and there, and there are a couple of shots that I remember liking the composition of. So when the whole thing with the... Um, the convoy starts and they're surrounding it with trucks and boxing it in. You see that as a bird's eye view from above. And I think that's great. And this has made me think, let's think more generally about the action because you just said, or said a little bit earlier, um, you have the same problems with Noah's action as you have in his previous films. And I was watching this and paying attention as mm. you were too because we have been talking about it a lot. And I, I was thinking this is the best action I think, he, apart from Dunkirk, which I need to rewatch, so I don't remember, this is the best action I think he's done. Now, that's relative. It may be that he's done terrible action. This is just a bit better, right? But let's, I, I think this is the best. And the reason is, you were saying, with the hand-to-hand combat in the first third of the film, that you were feeling something. You still didn't like it. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's fair. But you were feeling something, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And I, I, I think... So he has, this, he has this fight with someone who is travelling backwards in time that you later realise is him. Mm. Um, and, I mean, the moment that he starts going backwards in time, I'm thinking, oh, obviously he's going to fight himself. You know, so like it wasn't a huge surprise to me when it turned out to be that. Yes. I thought this has to be, you know. And what happens in that fight the first time you see it is you see these bullet holes on the wall and then you realise that these are these are going to go back into a gun. And actually that's in the trailer, that's not a huge surprise either. Mm. Um and this fight continues and like some shots seem to be reversed or like he, it's like he is fighting with someone who is travelling backwards in time so they're on the floor then they end up getting up but because he's travelling forwards he ends up in like a net grab that the guy has apparently had him in before you know in the future and you and you see the stuff clearly so a lot of the shots are still in this head and shoulder not quite head and shoulder mid shot sort of range um, that don't give you much clarity but you do still see when things are happening backwards and you're meant to see that and be weirded out by it, you see that clearly. You see these flips clearly. You see when the guy's on the floor and he's kind of scrambling, but mm. it's reversed. You see it clearly. And I think that's important. And I, and I think that may contribute to what, you, to what you felt about there was something I was feeling here. that You were getting the sense of what this fight is meant to be about. Someone travelling forwards in time, fighting someone backwards in time. I mean, um, you see, that is not the scene that I found exciting. What I found exciting okay. was, you know, all of the action around the opera house or the... Oh, yeah, yeah the opening. The opening. Uh, that, I was a bit discombobulated because, you know, so, I, you know, I was finding it really interesting. I was trying to follow it, yeah, but it wasn't quite making sense to me, yeah, mm-hmm. like, I kind of, you know, in your mind, you're unsettled, like, what is this about? You know, kind of, some of it is moving backwards, some of it is moving forwards. Yeah, how does the action relate to what you see? Right, that all kind of remained a bit too unclear for me to be genuinely excited by it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like really interesting, and I, I was very actively trying to to understand the logic of it all. Yeah, um, but it was that's not what I'm referring to by like this visceral kind of you know response. Right. Uh, I didn't I didn't feel that uh, at that moment. It was it was more like a kind of an you know an intellectual conceptual thing. Um, I I I still. Um, I still have, you know, large problems with the action. But again, you know, you're right, kind of, we're going to see it again on IMAX. You know, we might come up with, you know, a more sophisticated understanding of it upon uh, the second viewing. If I may, Mm -hmm. the worst action, I think, is the final war scene, actually. Yes. The concept of that is fantastic. The idea, what's going to happen before it happens, I think is wonderful. You've got a red team and you've got a blue team and the blue team's travelling backwards in time and they're doing, quote-unquote, a pincer movement where they're going to meet in time and steal the thing or whatever. And the idea, I'm going, God, this is going to be incredible. A war scene where half the people are travelling <laughs> backwards in time? Mm. Wow. And then it happens and... The upshot visually is there's a lot of explosions happening backwards in time that you see in the background. So, you know, smoke being sucked into somewhere that's just exploded, rubble being returned back to its unbroken state of being a wall or whatever. And you do switch back and forth between the two sides as well. So you see both red and blue going back in time, relatively speaking, to each other. But it's really uninvolving, I found. Um, there's not a clear enough sense of what they're hoping to achieve or or how things are happening. Like, I didn't even realise... I don't, I don't even think I know when they were supposed to meet... Like, is the idea that they meet in time at the end of their watches hitting 10 minutes each? They're going to zero and that's when they meet? Or did they meet halfway? I couldn't tell. 
Well, my understanding is that it was a five. Yeah, that's what I thought initially. Um, and so I, I think that's a problem. They, so, well, no, in the sense that they have ten minutes to get the thing done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at five minutes, they meet. You know, that, that was my understanding. Yeah, so it's a ten-minute fight rather than a twenty-minute fight or, or ten minutes from each end. Uh, it's, 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 it's crossing five min- yeah. It's, it's crossing over rather than meeting. Yeah, because one goes from the past, another one goes from the future. They yeah. meet, I think, at uh, at the five-minute point. That was my understanding. And then five minutes. Ca- See, that was my understanding when it was introduced. And then when it, once it was happening, I was thinking, is that right? But actually, I don't think you. it's clear enough either way. And, and this fundamentally goes to the problem with the film's concept in that I think the concept is wonderful. And I loved seeing it explained. Because the way it's explained is not just explained, it's shown to you. Like we were saying earlier about the relationship with the kid is telling, not showing. The way you learn about how backwards travel works or how the concept works is showing, not telling. Because what you've seen up until this point is a few things going backwards in time in a forwards-moving world. And you go, oh, what's going on here? And then when you get into that room where they go through, and like I say, the, the character goes through and the camera goes with him, and then you emerge into a backwards world, you're going, this is showing me how this works. This thing makes it turns you round and sends you out backwards and it, and you know they have spoken to you they are telling you things they're giving you information about your particles can't come in con- you can't breathe this air so you have to take air with you because you can't blah 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 but it's it's all in showing you and i love the way it's made physical and this goes back to what i said i was going to mention earlier the memento thing i watched where mm. nolan was explaining the plot of memento so the thing about that is half the plot goes forwards and half the plot goes backwards mm. and what you realize at the end of memento is you realise they're related at the end, and so he drew out this horseshoe shape on the on a blackboard, which actually looked more like a dick. But so the part it goes forwards, and then it curves back on itself and goes backwards, and that's how the plot of Memento works. And then you jump from one kind of strand, one one leg of the horseshoe to the other until you meet at the bend. Mm. And in this, that is literally physical. You walk into a room, do a one eighty, and come out again. I yeah. think it's brilliant. That well, I'm not made sure. visually, physically brilliant. I'm not sure it's brilliant. Um, but I want to talk to you about time in a moment. But uh, before I do, I just wanted to to demonstrate how badly I think some things are done in relation to action. Yeah, but uh, the, the dramatization of action is the whole of the scene where Elizabeth Debicki has to keep Kenneth Branagh alive. Yeah, until the mission is mm-hmm. accomplished. Right. So. There should have been a whole kind of point of view thing, creating tension between the man on the boat who's to give her the signal, right? You haphazardly return to him, but not in any systematic way. It actually doesn't succeed in a rising tension. Mm. You see her throw baby oil uh, on the floor of the ship, so you know that at some point she's going to kick him over, right? Engineer an accident. Engineer an accident. Right, but then the way that it's kind of dramatized, it almost like deflates everything. Yeah, I agree. You know, I kind of it wasn't exciting at all, right? And so you you have these stepping stones, these things that are meant to build up, you know, to tension and and suspense and excitement, and he just can't pull it off. You know. Yes, I agree. It's badly dramatized, and and its relationship with the the, the war scene, effectively war scene, the huge battle. Mm that it's intercut with is like the action isn't I don't want to say legible because the action itself is legible but the the whole kind of purpose and reason and structure of the action is not legible why are they here and why does this fight have to happen in this way is not legible ultimately so the idea is deflated by the fact that it doesn't really seem to make enough sense and then intercut with Debbie Key on the boat with Branner it's not exciting enough. It's just a phone call that, again, you can't really understand a lot of because the, the mix is t- unclear. But when you think of the potential of that scene, right? I mean, it could have been erotic, right? It could have been erotic to Branagh. Yeah. It could have been, like, mentally torturous to her. You know, uh, like, there are so many dimensions that one can play on that scene. And there, it's flat. There's nothing there, right? Kind of all of the potential of all of the potentialities, kind of none are mined. Yeah. And this idea of potentialities, I think, goes to the point I started and then forgot I was making earlier, because okay. <laughs> I went into I, I said that there's a problem with the core concept of the backwards time travel, mm-hmm. and then I went into talking about how great it is, how they show it, which I think is true. But the core problem 
is that this is an idea with a huge amount of potential that isn't realised because actually you end up what's the story that it's attached to? It's a story about a madman who wants to end the world. No. It's it's a bond story. It's rubbish. Yeah. It's rubbish really. Like it's and it's not interesting enough and the idea of Branagh's character, he's going to die, so he wants to take the whole world with him because if he can't have it, no one else can, which is the same thing that he does like, to his wife. If, yeah. no one, if I can't have you, no one else can. It's like it's there on paper. It's boring rubbish, really. And actually, you want this to be central. The fact that time travel exists, or, back, or time inversion exists in this world, is not central to Branagh, right? Like, you want his villainy... To have some relationship, I think. You want it to be central to the idea. Actually, what happens is he would want to end the world no matter what. Mm. He just happens to have this backwards time travel that means he can achieve it in some way. Mm. Like It's not it's not important that time travel... It, it's not I think some fundamentally relevant the, to the story. You, you see, the thing to me is that uh, conceptually, intellectually, so much of Nolan seems to be on a, on a Bond, on a James Bond level, mm. really. Like, you know, it's cartoony, stupid stuff. But done without the wit, yeah, or the excitement or the glamour mm. of many Bond films. So I think it's like, you know, uh, um, anyway, that's a thought. Something that we haven't explored, but, uh, or maybe we have. But I was talking to Ed Smith, you know, because uh, he's been listening to our podcast, you know, and he was saying that... Hello, Ed. Yes. <laughs> so he was saying that one of the things that we haven't uh, talked about, which which he thinks is really central, you know, to Nolan, is precisely the, the question of time. Yeah. Mm. So I think we have mentioned it. We have mentioned it. But I don't think we've explored it. No, I brought up on a previous podcast, um, uh, I think the Inception one, how you know, he has used time and played with it and structured it differently in his different films. And this is obviously one that does it again. You go on this kind of banana structure coming backwards and then forwards and then backwards and you go through the same action, which I think is great. Um, it was interesting watching all these Q&As with Nolan because hmm. he was asked about time and he talked a lot about subjectivity and I think it's really interesting. I mentioned subjectivity earlier because this is, this is in my head because I think, again, I think this goes back to that, to that banana room where you go in and come out hmm. going backwards. You know, what is more subjective than the way it happens in here? So actually what you realise is you are with the protagonist the entire time. Everything you see, apart from a couple of shots here and there where it's intercutting between forwards and backwards is with him. So as he travels forward through time himself, if he's going forwards in time, the world is forwards. If he's in the backwards world, then the world is backwards. You're with him. And it goes back to that banana room because you go into that into that chamber with him, the, the rotating chamber that takes you from one half to the other. Your camera goes in there with him and you emerge with him going backwards now. So like, his subjective experience is our subjective experience. Mm. And Nolan's talking a lot about, you know... Um, about subjectivity in, in the rest of his work. So, I, you know, I guess you see it in Inception, you know, subjectively, as the characters occupy different levels of the dreams, time goes more slowly, but it's not visceral, right? Like, it's explained, and you understand it right from the beginning. Remember we talked about in that opening scene of Inception, when you're intercutting between two dream levels, you see a watch speeding up and slowing down mm. that gives you the sense of how time is changing, and then it's explained in dialogue that mm. time slows down as you go down a dream. And you get this intercutting where you know, you'll cut up to a dream level, particularly the van level that's on top of everything, mm. and it's going very, very slowly to tell you all the action down below is happening more quickly or in the extended thing. But you know, it's not visceral, right? Mm. Basically, when you're on a level, time is proceeding normally, mm. and you're told, oh, we've got two weeks here, we've got nine months here, we've got five minutes here. This is much more, this is much more visceral because you literally see the entire world changing around you, going mm. backwards, going forwards. Um, in Memento, you know, there's the idea of subjectivity where so the central thing in Memento is your main character has this amnesia. He can't remember more than about five minutes of his life. And it's interesting because sometimes that's thought of as a time travel film, but it's not, right? Sometimes you'll speak of it as though it is. And just because the story is told backwards in time, you know, what each scene happened before the last, that's not what's happening. What, what's happening is Nolan is denying you the information that the main character is being denied by his own faulty memory. So if he can't remember it, you can't remember it. Ultimately, your experience will be different to his because you can remember what's going to happen in his future. You've just seen it. Mm. You know, so you're not living in five-minute chunks. He can't force you to, unless he literally gives you amnesia as an audience member, and that's not fair. <laughs> so I, I think when Nolan talks about subjectivity, 
it, it kind of crystallised it all. Like, this is what he's doing in his films. He wants you to experience what the characters experience and how they experience it. Well, that's one aspect. But I think, you know, going into the second screening, particularly looking at it in IMAX, I would like us to explore this question of time further because, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just about subjectivity, right? It's also used narrationally. It's used narrationally in particular ways. There are patternings through the way, you know, that Nolan uses time. You mentioned one of them, yeah, the horseshoe mm -hmm. kind of aspect. So I think it would just would be worth thinking about uh, when they return to the film uh, uh, again on Sunday. Yeah. Because, you know, time in its various dimensions is an ongoing concern. And obviously, you know, kind of time is essential to cinema in all kinds of ways. So, so um, how uh, Nolan explores it and to what ends and, you know, what effects uh, uh, it achieves is just uh, something that mm. I think we should talk about again. But actually, I don't want to talk about it now because, I, you know, I haven't thought it through, really. It's just an idea based on that conversation with, with Ed. Yeah. Here's an example of how uninvolved I was in the huge climatic battle scene mm. with the backwards and forward soldiers. Through a lot of the film, you're watching it, or at least I should say you, I was watching it, going, how are they doing this? You know, And what I was noticing was you get quite often a shot where there's 20 or 30 soldiers up close to you whose time you are in. Mm. So they're running forward somewhere. And in the background, you'll see 100 or 200 extras who are going backwards to you. But they're not compositing those shots because if you watch carefully, which I did, you what you can see them basically walking backwards very carefully, not to fall over. Because yes. <laughs> when they're reversed, they'll be going forwards, and you can tell because they would be running otherwise, and you can't run backwards that way, you mm. know. So that, that amused me to go, and, I, and again, I just wasn't involved because I was paying attention to the fucking extras who were walking backwards. Exactly. Um, I came out of the cinema genuinely, kind of feeling like I was in the film a little bit. Not to the extent where Dunkirk sort of shell-shocked me and made me go, oh, I need time to mm. get back to normality. But in the sense of, like, all of a sudden I was surrounded by people and, um, like, noticing how they were moving mm. and kind of moving around them. Like, this is, there's a real physicality to the film in terms of how people move around each other, I think, and, and negotiate sort of... Yeah, how the world works around them. Cars are going backwards, people are going backwards, objects are going backwards, and... and they meet up in interesting ways. You know, there's like the explosions kind of... They happen backwards. So like if you shoot a missile at a building that is going backwards in time, then the explosion happens backwards and you meet it or something. Very confusing. But you go, no, this does sort of make sense. It's just weird. And I kind of... I felt, well, I felt really in that. I didn't. Um, you know, because I'm always connecting it to the protagonist and, in fact, the people mm. in the scene. And actually, you know, when you're seeing it happen that way, I, I just couldn't understand how is anyone in danger? What do they have to avoid? Yes, right. that is a, you know, a so, troubling. So I found it very uninvolving. Because the one time you see an explosion that's gone the wrong way in time affect someone is when John David Washington is in the car and it's set on fire by Branner. And the explosion happens in reverse, so he doesn't get blown up by it. He ends up almost freezing because of the gas that's in the car or something. Mm. And it's it's, like, it's it's kind of explained at the beginning, saying yeah. something like the wind will be behind you, you know, and when there's fire, it'll freeze instead of heat. You, there, you, you're Did they say that. fire yeah. will freeze? I'm not sure that's. I'm not sure. Okay, maybe. Yeah, maybe you're right. I, I so you know. I, then, then, then I thought you it was something it. to do with propellant or gas in the car. Well, no, it's it's the fact of him going. Yeah. Yeah, backward into the past. Because the thing is, going forwards, the explosion just is an explosion, which means it would have had to start off being cold. Which doesn't make sense. Which is why I thought it was some ex some Well, you're thing. told that, you yeah, know. I'll so I mean, what the, why it works that way? What the science is? <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy, Kit. Um, hold on, let me just quickly look up his name. He's a scientist who helped them on Interstellar. Let me just quickly find his name. Oh, Kip. Kip Thorne. I think one of the one of the robots in Interstellar is named Kip after mm. him. So Kip Thorne was all over Interstellar and he's a physicist and he was giving them all this information about how things work and, and mm. how you can incorporate this. And I, and I read that he was involved in this but said, don't put my name on it. Because right. <laughs> like, this, this is just like the scientific background here. It has some, but it's, it's, it's unrealistic. Well, for it, one of the things that really, really got me going was, was Stafford, my mate, who is a doctor of physics, mm. um, told me 10 or 15 years ago that 
theoretically, things can travel backwards in time just as they travel forwards. Mm. It's not that you can do it yourself, and it's not that you could interact with them, but just the physics works the same way. It's like Newtonian physics, it runs forward and backwards the same way. So there could be things going on. And so the idea is here, like, I think it kind of starts off with the idea and goes, okay, but what if you can do it? You know, what if you can go around? That's where the nonsense comes in. And it is pure science fiction. There's no way. It just, it, it really amused me because I thought, oh, God, Stafford told me this 15 years ago. Mm. And now there's a Well, of it. but you see, we go back to this thing of logic, right? Because the thing is that, I mean, I love science fiction. And, you know, you can let your imagination run riot. Everything can make sense if you're told the rules. Yeah. And if the rules are legible, you know. But do you and, and think they're illegible here then? Well, I, I think it's a problem with Nolan in general, yeah, mm. with all his films. It's something that we've discussed and, you know, I haven't made a project of it. I'm not mm-hmm. a, you know, a Nolan scholar. It's just you watch the films and it, it keeps arising as an issue. And it certainly arose as an issue just now because you didn't understand why it would be ice instead of fire or... That particular you know, thing. So, so... Uh, but the rest uh, of it, I think, it, it kind of it, it basically stands up and works out, and you go, oh, "This is." That's why I said when I when I saw how the world was operating once you had been through the banana room, as I'm calling it. Yeah. Um, that's when my I was agape, going, "Oh God, now this is how it makes sense. This works. You are literally living the same action scenes backwards, and everything is meeting up." And in fact, the one thing that really didn't make sense, but I think is a problem with the film, not the logic, it's a film of the story, is when he fights himself when he didn't realise he was fighting himself, and now he's in the armour, going backwards, he shoots at himself three times. And, that, and, he, and, he, and, he, and well, obviously, why would he shoot at himself? But again, I just think that's so badly dramatised, because, you know, when you're told the rules, the one thing you mustn't do is exactly that. Oh, well, if you, if you said to me that the explosion thing is explained in line of dialogue, that is too, because they say that's why we have these barriers. So, so, and for me, the barriers, it made it clear to me that if you're in suit, armour, he's uh, not literally touching himself. They said particles can't touch. Ah, uh, okay. So, well, I, uh, um, yeah. If I miss something, you might miss something. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see on Sunday. Um, um, but, it, but it just, it made no sense to me because I guess it was predestined that he would choose to try and shoot at himself because there are these bullet holes in the wall that we've seen earlier. But why would he have done that anyway? Because... He doesn't want to kill himself because he will die. <laughs> if it had been going forwards, he shot himself, not knowing he would turn out to be the guy in the suit. That makes sense. But it's not. The wrong guy is shooting. That's all I'm saying. One thing I would say, at final, is actually the first third of the film that you were talking about liking the action in, I didn't like the story in. Mm. I think the tone is off. Mm. Not off, but not involving enough. I wanted a bit more showiness, a bit more expression. And it takes a long time to get you into the story and because you're seeing little bits and pieces of the backwards action there there's not enough keeping you going because actually the main thing is it's telling you this story about these weapons um about this guy who has some apocalyptic thing or whatever and it's and it's a spy thing and none of that is interesting enough and that's mm. the bulk of the first third of the film after that is when you really get into the conceptual action that's when the film started to wow me. Yeah. It took well, a long time to warm up to that. Well, um, I kind of feel the, the slightly different. I mean, I agree with some of your criticisms, but, you know, I found the first third exciting, mm. uh, and then I, I was just unimpressed, uh, occasionally bored, <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, beginning to see things from an increasingly critical perspective mm. instead of just enjoying what you're seeing, which is what, what I was doing at the beginning. And finally, how interesting to see uh, uh, an old Indian woman as a kind of villain, or is she? Dimple Kapadia plays Priya, who Celia mentioned to me the other day, she was a huge star in Bollywood in the 80s. Right. I had no idea, but how interesting to see her. Well, I thought, to be honest, I mean, if you're talking representationally, uh, I thought having a black protagonist for a film like this, I thought, wow, you know, and then I realised, you know, well, it's not so strange, you know, Denzel Washington has been doing it for a while, and but and then dad. you realize, you know, I, I didn't know it was his dad, <laughs> right? So that's worth a mention as well, you know, because yeah. he is the protagonist. It's not Robert Pattinson. Yes, absolutely. Robert who Pattinson is, who is his, by far the bigger star. Is his kooky sidekick who mm. based his role to some degree on Christopher Hitchens. And you know, when I heard that, I thought, oh, you see it in the trailer. And then the first time you see uh, Pattinson here, he shows up with five o'clock shadow, the kind of flop of hair, sweat. A, a drink in his hand and he asks for another one and you're like, yeah, that is Christopher Hitchens. Yes. <laughs> All over. And the slight campiness. Um, um, 
but the, the thing, one final thing I would say about John David Washington actually is, to some degree, I think they're trying to do like a like a, a Keanu Reeves thing with him in The Matrix, mm. where he's kind of blank and he's there to experience the whole world. Mm. But I wish he would react more to it. Actually, he he has this kind of side eye at the whole world where he's surprised by things, but kind of deadpan about it. Mm. And I would like him to be more shocked when he sees. Because it's mad shit that's happening. Mm. I would like it to be more shocked. And I think that affects the tone. The tone is quite dispossessed. You know who I thought was blank and uncharismatic? Michael uh, Caine. No, I like Michael Caine okay. in this. What's his name? Aaron Taylor-Johnson? Yes, Aaron Taylor-Johnson. You know, I had like a big crush on him because he was so sexy, really. <laughs> uh, um, and I love that comic book film that he did. And uh, I love that Oliver Stone film that he did. I loved him in it. Yeah, he's kind of, you know, he's beautiful and sexy. And I just, I didn't recognize him in this. And I thought they should, should really have cast like a star in that part, right? It's substantial enough to have somebody with some life rather <laughs> than, you know, this dead thing. And I, and then it turns out to be Aaron Taylor Johnson. You know, so, so actually, I think that's a problem of direction, really, you know. Could be a problem with your memory. What do you mean? <laughs> you didn't, rem- didn't remember him. Uh, After it, he well, went, oh, I saw you know, I, it could be, <laughs> uh, uh, but actually, you know, to not be memorable is a is a problem. Whoever you know, who, whoever. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, it's it's the director's fault, you know, because, I mean, he's not a major star in Taylor Johnson, but he is a star, and he's somebody who's had an impact on audiences in the past. So if he's not having one now, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a problem for the film. I recognized him, but I didn't recognize that I recognized him, and once his name came up in the credits at the end. I immediately went, oh, it's Aaron Taylor Johnson. Hmm. That's why, you know, I quite liked him in this, to be honest. And I thought the role, the size of role suits him. Well, I, I didn't, uh, I, I, I swear, I didn't recognise him and I thought they should have cast a star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there you go. So, um, very mixed bag. Uh, I think I'm, 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 I'm more uh, unimpressed than Mike. Uh, certainly I'm a, I'm a lot less involved. Mm. Uh, but we will see it one more time in proper IMAX and maybe uh, we will come to a, a different or hopefully uh, at least a more um, complex understanding of why it is that we feel the way we do. Yeah, so we'll see it again on Sunday. I'm looking forward to it and we'll see it in nice big IMAX, which is going to be a treat because it always is. So thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Yes, and you can return for the second exploration of this film uh, in a few days' time. Return. Very good. Because it's your back going back. (laughs) 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 All right, thank you. It turns out uh, it's not an Inception sequel. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I, had, I had my hopes, didn't I? Uh, you, yes. <laughs> You're like one of those mad fans, you know, trying to read the runes. <laughs> <laughs>